Hello and welcome to All Aboard, the UK's first podcast dedicated to transport, data and innovation, brought to you by ODI Leeds. I'm Neil McClure, Head of Transport Innovation at ODI Leeds and Head of New Transport Dedicated ODI Leeds spin-off, Open Transport North. The subject of today's podcast episode is the future of the bus industry. To use the words of the Department for Transport, buses are key to our communities. They connect people with places, the offices they work in, the schools where they learn, and the shops where they spend their money. In 2018, over 60% of public transport journeys are on buses. So it's clear that bus services are hugely important in our daily lives. But in recent years, the number of journeys that we make by bus in this country has steadily declined. In 2018 in England, we made 4.2 billion bus journeys, half of those being in London. And the recent trends show that numbers have declined between 1% and 2% per year for about the last 10 years. The bus industry continues to face a number of challenges. Rising car ownership, rising costs including fuel costs, congestion and increasing journey times are some of the major challenges impacting passengers' decisions to travel by bus and consequently impacting the ability for bus operators to continue to provide a competitive service. We're really lucky to have two excellent guests on today's episode to talk about these challenges and how their companies and the industry as a whole might tackle these in the future. First up is Alex from Transdev Blazefield. Transdev Blazefield is a French-owned transport company operating services across Europe. In the UK, their 1,200 staff operate 500 services across mostly Yorkshire and the northwest of England. In addition, Transdev recently launched Vamoose, a demand-responsive transport and crowdsourcing service that was a subject of a previous episode of our podcast. Hello and welcome to Alex. Hi Neil, great to be with you this afternoon. Second, we have Martin Gilbert, Managing Director of Go North East, a major bus operator across the northeast of England, covering Tyne and Weir and some parts of Northumberland and Durham, and East Yorkshire buses covering East Yorkshire and Scarborough, with 2,500 employees operating 1,050 vehicles. In a previous role, Martin was chief executive of the successful Reading Bus Company, a pioneering innovator that defied the market trend for years and achieved significant growth in bus ridership across the Thames Valley area. Hello to you, Martin. Hello, Neil. So, we have two guests very well placed to comment on how the bus industry might change in the future. So let's get on with the questions. Uh, To look forwards, first we want to look back. There is a general trend, as I mentioned, in this country uh, of declining use of our buses, with more services than ever being cut. Yet, as both of your respective companies have proven recently, it is possible to achieve growth in this market. What's your secret to achieving this growth? Um, Well, well, I think firstly, some of the recent experiences we've had is that if you provide buses that people want to use they will use them and that sounds quite basic I guess but um, you know our recent successes you know notably you know we've got um, the, the 36 which is seen as a, a sort of class leading product in the industry which runs between Leeds and Harrogate you know this has been a product that is always looking at what customers want always asking them what they expect from bus travel what will get them out of their car and is actually positioned towards um, in this case, the kind of people that, that enjoy their lifestyles in and around Harrogate so is a is a high class, um, highly specified bus route that people are genuinely proud to see on and 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 are advocates of. And and every year, you know, we're now 15, 16 years on from when that was first invented as this high spec route, 
we are still we are still seeing growth of 20%, you know, compared to last year. And that that can't be just a silver button. Yes, yes, okay, we don't see that everywhere else on all of our routes, but it, it generally when we, when we follow the principle of talking to people in the towns that we serve about what they want from buses and give them that, generally we get growth. We, we've just recently acquired um, Rosendale Transport, Rosso, from the, its council owner last year. And, and again, by putting in branded routes that, you know, buses, again, that people want to be seen on, run reliably with great drivers, with Wi-Fi, USB, all the kind of things now that people just expect on buses. You know, this, these aren't special things anymore. These are people that these are things that people should just expect. We have nine percent growth there as well. Um, so I honestly believe that it is possible if you carry on looking at what your customers want, specifying your buses, attention to detail, motivating your staff, be true to the towns that you serve. It is possible to to, to get growth. And, and, and start to you know really change perceptions of, of why people use buses. So I, I do believe it's possible. The, the key is be market-led, be research-led, um, and, and, and make sure you reflect that the, the towns and cities that you serve. And I think a key part of that now is really making sure that it's very local, um, certainly within the organisation that I work and, and our parent group. It, it's about local brands for our individual operations, Brighton, Oxford, Plymouth, South Coast, down the North East, but more importantly, local management, management that are, that are locally aligned to the communities that they serve um, and are working in, in a genuine partnership situation. We are not fully in control of our own destiny as a bus industry. We operate on a, on a road network infrastructure that is completely outside of our control bus shelters are the domain of local authorities and 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 some of the other factors around concessionary fares and our ability to even put times up about services at bus stops so we have to work in partnership with others um to get the right sort of environment for them to work but i mean yeah agree with everything alex has said and 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 we mustn't underestimate the enormity of the people in all of this and and yes they've got to be locally aligned but they've also got to be appropriately energized and with that right attention to detail we can never rest on our laurels. We've got to keep evolving the product. We've got to make sure it's appropriately priced, and we've got to make sure it's properly promoted as well. I think sometimes we're a little bit too shy uh, in uh, shouting proudly about some of the achievements of, of, of the profession um, and the offer that we have to customers. But also, we need to make sure we're properly communicating that offer in the right way. Um, you know, Price and frequency are, are, are headline things to talk about, but also the quality of the offer. How do we get that across to people in a way that they're really going to connect with it come and give us a try uh, and actually tell all their friends and, and we start building an even more successful transport network and if i if i can I'll just maybe do a, a brief thought experiment let's imagine if i was an md of a bus company that was suffering from declining patronage declining numbers uh, and i looked at applying some or all of those kind of elements of that secret source that you just mentioned before but i'm still seeing that decline what are some of the the bigger external factors that or external challenges that you face that actually are, are more outside of the control of, of of the bus company that you're in? I think there's there's, there's lots of what Martin's read, mentioned already about congestion, the ability to provide a reliable timetable. I think one of the issues we're facing in one of the towns we serve, even though we've applied lots of things I've already said, is actually the quality of the destination. Um, in terms of the, the the shopping offer, you know, industry is all but gone from certain towns that we're in. Um, the shopping offer is nowhere near as attractive as it is in the next town. And so some of these very, very local networks are, are becoming under pressure. But again, our challenge is if you talk to your customers, they'll tell you where you want to go. So 
take them somewhere else. Um, you know, whilst of course always trying to see if there's anything you can do to support the town because we we work in conjunction with you know the the, the shopping centre providers and local colleges to make sure that you know first of all we're doing everything we can to support it, but but always engage with your with your customers to see if you can't take them to to one place which is in decline, see see if there's somewhere else that's a more attractive destination they wish to go to. So and that's and that that's that's a particular issue that that, that we're seeing. You know, we 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 serve a varied parts of um of of the north of England. You know, we're we're serving, you know, Harrogate. Harrogate is very different to Keithley. Burnley is very different to Blackburn, which is very different to Bury and Leeds. In some ways, is very different to Manchester. And again, it's you can't just apply the same principles for for all these places. And so the key answer always is. You know, be sure to what the market wants, be market led and be customer led and that should lead you to the right answers. I mean, you know, we absolutely can't be precious about the uh current format of networks. The world is changing, the way people shop, the way people work and, and, and there are, are huge regional variances, as Alex has just said, uh, about what that looks like out there in the real world. Um and so therefore we do have to adapt and change services to meet that need. But we need to be mature about it to say, look, things can't stay as they are just because they've been a hundred years like that. If if the retail offer has changed and people are shopping elsewhere or, you know, there's been a change of major employment hotspots of course, the bus network is going to have to change as a result of that. It is there as a as a mass uh, transport mode, and 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 sometimes it's very easy to forget that to think that buses should be here uh, for every single individual need. They 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 can't physically do that. The economics don't stack up, regardless of the operating model. Um, it is about supply and demand, and, and it is about meeting the needs. It's that market led uh, piece that Alex has said there. So we we can't be all things to all people, but we can be a lot of things to a lot of people. Um, and we need to make sure we're we're keeping in touch with reality there and have the support for stakeholders. Yes, sometimes tough decisions need to be made. Tough decisions are being made in fully regulated, uh, municipal, you know, uh, sort of third uh, sector type uh, and uh, private operating regimes right across the country. So this this is not about the model. We also, when we talk about patronage decline, can't lose sight of the fact about the pressure on on council uh, budgets for supported services. Again, uh, services have been supported long before the deregulation uh, of, of the British bus industry and under the National Bus Company. Local authorities still made a contribution to support the services that didn't generate enough revenue to cover their costs. Those budgets are now under pressure. A lot of those services are having to be reviewed. Um, and as a result of that, that is also leading to some patronage decline. But just the other two points beyond that, congestion, a perennial problem, but... We can't tackle all of these issues in isolation. It goes back to that genuine partnership uh, approach. It really does take two to tango. And, and that isn't just about the bus operator talking to the local authority. That's also about the local authority being very open and willing to act and work in partnership with the bus operator too. There's there's lots in there. Um, you both mentioned uh, congestion, um, which as we sit here in Leeds, um, anyone who's travelled around in Leeds will know that congestion is a, a major problem um, for pedestrians for cyclists for car users taxi users but also for 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 buses as well um not just leeds but all of our all of our big cities manchester birmingham newcastle seems to be a growing challenge around congestion even our small towns and cities as well and some of the towns you've mentioned uh, previously we see in a lot of the work that we do um you know a lot of work uh, against what seems to be a national societal car dependency you have got growing urban populations across our country and declining bus services so that's intensifying the congestion problem uh, in our towns and cities 
which within the bus industry tends to see an increase in bus fares and and could be a contributing factor to the to the decline in bus use so there's a, there's a bit of a circular effect there in terms of fixing the challenge the growing challenge of congestion is that solely the role of of government be it central or local government who who set policy or, or is there more that the bus industry could do to as you say martin to play more of an active role in in that well i think yeah there's there's lots of the partnership stuff that i think you know martin's already covered quite well and and you know and it's it's working with the local authority to try and come up with solutions i don't think the bus industry should should sit there and wait for for people to solve its problems for them um, and I'm not suggesting that happens. It probably happens in one or two places. But I think we've got to help by identifying where hotspots are and things like that. So I think you know, bus, bus, bus operators ought to be as proactive as they possibly can to identify these locations, talk to customers, involve drivers more. You know, we have many, much of our drivers are in teams, so they really get to know the routes they're driving, and we get really good intelligence from that. And of course, you know. We, we allow customers to speak to us by so many points that, you know, we, we get a good source of intelligence there. And, of course, we've got real-time tracking and all that sort of stuff. So there's a hell of a lot of intelligence there that, that I'm sure, you know, bus operators could always do, you know, a lot in terms of being proactive to get that information there. So it isn't just a case of sitting there and waiting for someone to solve this this congestion problem. I think there's lots there that we can do to, to, to feed that debate and get, get solutions ready. But, of course, the other thing as well is, is that... <laughs> are we always certain that the bus is attractive enough to get these people out of their cars so the cars get out of the way and everyone's on the bus instead? And again, that, that's a question I think we should always ask ourselves as operators too because that's part of the solution. Um, not necessarily led by congestion, but one of the things you know we've started doing in Harrogate recently is we've allowed free travel on our local network on a Sunday because, okay, that's to try and generate trade generally, but at the same time, it's it's trying to get those people that use cars to give the bus a try and obviously, if they give it a try then and they like it and they come back in a week, hopefully that's another car off the road. And all what we, we do, and I know all what Martin's companies do as well, is it's all about making the product attractive enough for car use to use. And that's 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 surely part of the weaponry in our arsenal, that it should be about making buses as attractive to use so those cars get out of the way. And I think as well also, sometimes being a bit less precious about when there are other competitors, um, you know, what we would think of as competitors, such as rail services, actually, you know, we, we compete, you know, fairly head on with, with the rail service between Harrogate and Leeds on one of our routes, the same between Burnley and Manchester. But actually, if that rail service helps to get um, cars off the road as well, and then we're all in this public transport, you know, we're all trying to increase the size of the public transport pie and reduce um, the number of cars on the road, well, surely that's a good thing. So even there's even different ways of thinking about that in, in, a, in a much more mature way too. I think there's lots of examples where the bus profession is doing that uh, and it's just making sure it's getting the right support from the highway network. I mean, the the big topic about allocation of road space is a tough one. It, you know, there's some unpopular decisions sometimes need to be made if we look ourselves in the mirror of society and actually say, what is the most efficient use of road space? Well, actually, it's the vehicle that can take, you know, up to 100 cars off the road. It's the bus. Uh, but that, we appreciate, doesn't sit with everybody and not every journey that's out there can be be made by bus either so we've got to be a bit pragmatic about this but but equally there there does need to be a, a firmer argument i think for a bus priority and, and there are some great examples of some very bold politicians out there who have made some bold decisions around the allocation of road space and so nine times out of ten it's paid off it's made the bus network more attractive it's kept it efficient it's helped the bus industry deliver an affordable service to users 
but there there is low hanging fruit out there within the I believe within the existing network. This isn't just about building bus lanes um, and contraflow lanes and, and 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 guided busways and the like. There there is a big opportunity in terms of the phasing of traffic lights. There is a big opportunity in terms of even just paint markers on uh, the road network, and 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 the bus operators really need to be properly listened to in all of this because actually what other group of road users can talk to a highway authority with the sheer number of vehicles we have in our fleet with one representative voice that's just on vehicles i don't think anybody else comes close in terms of being able to talk to a highway authority and say hello i represent a thousand vehicles using your road network nobody else can do that add into that then the number of journeys that those vehicles are making that's a very big number and then we look at the number of customer journeys we're representing, it's phenomenal. So really, the bus operator should be a local authority's primary source of intelligence of what on earth is going on out there, particularly around the phasing of traffic lights and the layouts of junctions, because if you can get the buses moving better, the rest of the road network is going to move better as well. And, and I get very frustrated when I see uh, phasing issues, lights that are meant to turn to green when the bus approaches, or ones that keep all of the traffic there of a red signal when there's no cars coming in the opposite direction. And there's, there's lots uh, of talk about intelligent traffic signals, and, and indeed we've got some fantastic uh, opportunities opportunities with funds, the Transforming Cities fund is out there at the moment that can help bring more intelligence to traffic signals. But they don't just work out the box and they, they need um, setting up properly, they need maintenance and when things change out on the road network, they also need manual intervention. They need people to get in there and, and, and to tweak things. And and I think it's it's little known that, that you know the challenges of, of, of the current economic climate that we're in aren't just hitting local bus budgets in terms of supported services. They're hitting high Highway authorities' budgets and the ability for them to have people that can do these things. There are local authorities out there who do not have the resources to go and tinker with traffic lights or go and properly um, uh, have the right staffing in their control centres to cover the peak periods or special events and all the rest of it. And, and we really are reaching a very toxic crisis point where actually there's some very easy things that can be done by having a bit more funding with the right people in the right places to unlock the capacity of what we've already got out there. Forget big road building schemes. So it's so um, I think bus operators are generally quite proactive in coming forward with where their pinch points are, where their issues are. Actually, there's an issue with local authorities' ability to respond to some of this now, and it's uh, very worrying from where I sit. Another factor at play of all of this is is the availability and pricing of car parks as well. And um, this is becoming quite an emotive topic where some people are saying a way to rejuvenate the high street is to have free parking. But, well, actually, it's not if people are going to be sitting in queues of traffic trying to get into those respective areas uh, and or it's going to have a detrimental effect on the local bus services that then pushes up fares and we get into a bit of a vicious cycle. So really everybody working together to have a, a sustainable, uh, holistic view on this um, is what we need. But unfortunately, you know, motorists are uh, a sizable part of the voting community and sadly bus passengers very rarely uh, really have a big loud voice on this sort of stuff and, and, and we all should be doing more to give them that voice. Martin, you mentioned the R word earlier, regulation. Yes. I think in the context of deregulation actually, but one of the big recent changes to the bus industry as a whole has been the Bus Services Act 2017 and within that were some some potential um, elements for sort of change changes to be made 
um, with regards to the relationships between private operators and uh, and local authorities or combined authorities or, or whatever whatever um, phrase uh, we like to use. Do we need more bus regulation? Could it work, for example, where we could see London-style bus franchising um, in, in other cities or other areas of, of the country, do you think? Well, you can have what you want if people are prepared to pay for it, and uh, the London style still comes at a huge cost. Uh, okay, its central government funding uh, is, is reducing, but it is still uh, funded by other means that are generated in London, and, and, and there is a net sizable funding line to the London bus network that enables that level of service to be provided and those fares to be offered. Um, there, There is no reason why a similar regime cannot be done in partnership if the funds are available. And the big question with the whole uh, franchising and comparison to the London debate is about, fine, but where is the money going to come from? The, the reality uh, is that actually buses are, are quite regulated already. We, we are regulated by the Office of the Traffic Commissioner and the Enforcement Agency, the DVSA. We have to give due notice of changes to services. That's been changed as part of the Bus Services Act. It's been extended now. It's got a statutory consultation window with local authorities. We are now required to give transparency of, of customer numbers and fair information if services are going to be changed where there might be a gap so that local authorities can consider what else they might want to do. And we also are enforced if we aren't meeting punctuality and reliability uh, standards. That is in stark contrast to highways authorities who, who aren't regulated at all in terms of any of the things that are delivered on a road network. So um, just that point alone, I think you know, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that there is some regulation there already. Funding is, is at the heart of all of this. The, the bus industry will deliver um, for local authorities, combined authorities, society at large, um, if the money is there to help support it. And, and, and that funding need is, is no different if we look back in history to pre-1986 in terms of the level of um, public funding that was going into the bus network and also uh, if we look at London as an example and indeed across to mainland Europe. I think we, we need to be getting back round the table with, with proper open partnership, with, a, with aligned objectives and recognise that it doesn't matter whether it is um, a, a full public sector bus company, a franchise bus company, a municipal bus company, a private bus company. The issues of the day are funding, congestion and air quality and they don't change with whatever the model is um, that is out there. I think another element that, that we shouldn't lose sight of is, is, is the people side of things. We're, we're not blessed with uh, unlimited talent with, within our profession of people wanting to come and work for us and do all the important tasks. So some of the aggregation that exists in the market today with, with the groups actually is centralising some skill that's being able to be deployed over large areas. And if you start boiling that down to saying every local authority is going to have its own bus company or every combined authority, where are these people going to come from that can that can run this? And also, how are they going to be incentivized? What is really going to be the driving force behind these plans and these services that are deployed? Because at the moment, we have something that's aligned to the market and is trying to balance meeting the needs of the market with some of the politics and making sure enough revenue comes in to, to cover the costs. And yet, there's a surplus, there's a profit from that, but actually most of that is reinvested in new vehicles and, 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 and some of the other stuff that the industry is doing to, to, to take things forward. Um, so I think there's lots to consider there. There are, I mean, I've come from four years of, of running a municipal bus company at Reading Buses. That's been held up in headlines recently as, as the sort of thing that, that, that some politicians want to see industrialised across the UK. Well, looking back over my four years there, there wasn't anything that I saw that company was doing that couldn't be achieved 
in the rest of the bus industry with that level of open partnership with a local authority. And, and Alex, I'm sure he's going to tell us about it in a minute, has a great example of where they've taken over a municipal operator and, 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 and the, former, uh, the, lo- the former local authority owner is, is over the moon with what has been delivered there. So the, the ownership model is, is no silver bullet. It, it's really about all of those economic factors and, and, and the congestion and the societal piece that, that, that sits around that. Yeah, and I think one word that, that sort of captures a lot of what Martin says is this sense of entrepreneurship. I mean, that's the the thing that I think attracts many of us into the industry. I think it's the kind of thing reason why I think people like me and Martin work in it because we can we can truly do creative things that impress customers that get customers on board buses. And I guess my concern is in other models how that's actually potentially could be prevented and how the talent that is attracted to industry in its present format may may not be so attracted if it if it was in a different kind of setting and that that you know that the, the the theory of entrepreneurship does then extend to what martin very kindly points out of what we what, what has happened at rosso you know we haven't just took over a, a bus operator and and give the council a bit of cash so they're happy the council are actually now actively saying you know why didn't we do this ages ago i was in a a, a, a chamber meeting um one 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 evening an open open forum and the council leader was almost well she was in tears she said i just can't believe what's been achieved and why you know her, her own words were you know we're often criticized politicians for making wrong decisions you know here we have we've made we've made the right one and, and, and these people have, have sorted out for us which which is amazing to hear and is full credit to all all my colleagues who help us deliver it but it's um but yeah it, it all does go back to actually that wasn't that's not about ownership that's about you know right people right place doing the right things and, and actually then local authorities entrusting us to do it for them and that's that's what happened at, at rosso that's what happened with martin at reading <laughs> as well um you know but, but the ownership didn't really matter um so i think that's that 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 for me sort of you know d- does does help to sort of um sum it up and of course you know the pressure on on funding is there in in, in any model you know I, i'd like to think in many cases the commercial operators are quite good at uh, 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 no, no, and they said recycling money. That's probably the wrong choice of words. But we're quite good uh, uh, at making sure you know we run comprehensive networks. You know, often there there, there is no um, you know we 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 set out to run a comprehensive service, and we know sometimes that the bus at half past eight on a Tuesday night doesn't carry enough people. But we believe in providing that comprehensive service, so we're not always necessarily motivated that every single journey must be profitable. We don't often think like that. I think we have the the right sense of service sometimes that 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 a public owner would also have you know i think i think many of us really do believe that and i think you only have to look at timetables and provisions uh, you know across networks that, that that sort of stuff is happening so yeah back to back to the original question i guess is that yeah you can have whatever your model you want and and in some ways you know transdev the company i work for operates in very different models you know we i i uh, you know our company is blazefield is 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 um, is one of very few operations that Transdev have. We're certainly in the minority in terms of being a commercial operator in a deregulated industry. But I tell you what, we fascinate all of the countries we work in in terms of how our model works. We absolutely fascinate them. Um, and, and I actually think it's a very interesting really because i hear all the discussions that happen in the uk about the quest for you know more regulation and actually i think what's starting to happen in other parts of the world is they're very they're very interested that this is actually a very efficient way of running bus services and i think you may begin to see them try to go the other way while interestingly the uk you know there's pressure in the uk to go the opposite um 
So, yeah, fascinating topic. I'm sure we could have uh, many podcasts just devoted to that subject. <laughs> subject of the next episode, franchising. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, let's talk about innovation and tech um, with particular reference to competition. Um, the bus faces more competition now than possibly ever. Um, things like ride sharing, Uber and Lyft, etc. Um, crowdsourcing routes, demand responsive travel, um, dockless bikes, electric scooters. They're all different ways that we can now get around our towns and cities um, that we possibly couldn't 10, 20, 30 years ago. What do you see as the biggest challenge or threat to, to bus as a whole going forward? And, and what, do you th- what more do you think the bus industry could do to prepare for that? I mean, at the moment, it's still the private car despite uh, seeing some, some changing I- in the trends in terms of uh, people taking their driving licences and the age of that and car ownership, but still we are seeing rising congestion that is being driven by single occupancy vehicles. Um, but what we can't get away from is a, a growing part of that, that single occupancy vehicle uh, is taxis and delivery vehicles. And we're now living in this society of, of, of door-to-door mobility that is actually becoming cheaper and cheaper, particularly with people uh, like Uber, um, where it's very dependable, it's very easy to use, it's on an app, it, you know you know where it is, you've got full transparency of what's going on, and it gives the user an awful lot of confidence in the product, and, and we have to get the bus up to that same standard in terms of giving the users absolute ultimate transparency and confidence about where the vehicle is, how long it's going to take them to get there, what the price is, and an easy means to, to transact. Um, but also, the, the, you know, the threat from, from that congestion piece is, is around the whole sort of rise of, of, of deliveries and, and how you can have stuff within an hour in certain parts of the UK delivered to you. And, and, and all of this is leading to a very inefficient use of road space. I, I don't think we're, we're, we're necessarily sitting here and saying that we, we see a uh, big fret or shift from, from dockless bikes and, and from some of these other um, things. You know, we want to encourage an active society and bus use is very good at getting people active. It's very healthy. Um, so, I mean, in terms of where I'm going with all that, I suppose I'm sort of, you know, just it, it, it's a very big and complicated topic and there's there's lots of different things out there that are happening. But But for me, if I look in my own operation, actually we've got... Uh, uh, a rapidly growing number of single occupancy taxi type vehicles and that's not good for the environment that's not good for for road space it's not an efficient means of of moving people and there doesn't appear to be anywhere near the level of regulation around these vehicles that there has been uh, in previous years and certainly nowhere near the level of regulation we have in the UK bus industry in terms of the financial standing requirements, the engineering standards, and the standards around our drivers in terms of licensing, their health and well-being, the hours that they work, and their technical competence. Yeah, and I, I think the thing that we you know need to need to always try and support as well is this idea of of, of lifestyles without cars. I don't want to say like a world without a car, or people because you know cars for most people do do need to have a role for them. And I think you know we we accept that. And I think as an industry we need to accept that we will never stop car use, full stop. But actually, what we can do is that by working you know in a truly multimodal and truly multimodal offer, you know, actually not see you know the um, um, you know, um, cycle hire as threats, or, or perhaps even to some degrees, things like Uber and and, and intelligent ride sharing, because actually these things can complement bus use, and these these things can say to people, you can survive without a car actually if you live here, 
Um, and I think often that's that's what London achieves quite a lot, and why London gets great bus use because it's it's a city that you know actually it's it's really difficult to have a car and to drive in central. All there's all things that that make it really difficult. But at the same time, there's usually quite a decent choice to, to make it quite actually a nice thing to do. And I think that that's that's more the challenge um, for us is that how can we make the bus truly part of that choice? So so it isn't just used by people that that don't have a choice. Um, it's used by people that are proud to use the bus and proud to have it as part of their um, their, their overall transport mix. Whether it, it, you know they're getting on, they're, they're riding a bike to the bus stop, they're then jumping a bus, you know, for for an hour's journey that they wouldn't want to necessarily make on a bike, and then perhaps of an evening um, when they go home, you know, it's it's a rideshare for the last mile or whatever it may be. So I think that's that's where I'd like to see us more positioned, not see us all. You know, if, if you're not a car, therefore, you know, you, you're the enemy, actually. Uh, how can we interact with some of these movies? And actually, sometimes it may actually be even hiring a car as well. So the car itself as a motorist might even be the choice too. But, you know, things like park and rides, you know, I think we need to get much more inventive about park and ride. You know, we need to get out this idea that, that a park and ride is, is what we see it is in the UK, where it's it's this fixed bus service that runs so often um that, that that is run from dedicated sites um and and is often very busy going into town in the morning empty going back and then vice versa in the evening i think we need to really get out those models i mean the, the things that i really want to get us into is is work and you actually build car parks next to really frequent bus routes which is almost the principle of how, of how, of how the rail industry often approach it they don't they don't build a park and ride with a railway line they say hey we can bring it onto this station and build a car park next to it we should be doing that with interurban bus services um, and so I think there's still a lot of things out there that again often involve partnership often things we can't do ourselves but actually it's part of this acceptance that the bus could be part of the journey solution rather than just this one thing for people that don't have cars or can't ride a bike or whatever it may be I think you know, there's a huge willingness on, on, on large parts of the bus industry to, to work more collaboratively and, and work to become more integrated. But again, you know, just building from what Alex said, you know, my never-ending comments around partnership, but, you know, actually, you, you look at London, there's a good blend of incentives and disincentives there that are politically led that help encourage behaviours, things like the congestion charge zone, the lack of availability of parking, um, and the financial support for fares. There's been a, a huge commitment from, from, from the Mayor, which has a huge price tag attached to it in terms of freezing fares. So, again, there, there's a whole economic and political piece here that, that's outside of the control of, of bus operators. But equally, I don't want to lose sight of the fact of some of the good work that has been done. Yeah, we're here in West Yorkshire. Uh, the local combined authority has done some fantastic work with the M card that's uh, interoperable across all bus operators and has uh, some uh, availability on the rail network. In Tyne and Weir, we have the network one range of tickets that's all bus operators and the metro system as well. But there are also challenges around the technical standards of that. You know, not everybody is talking the same language in terms of their technology, and, and a lot of that, um, actually, the bus industry is all talking the same language. There's been huge investment in, in smart ticket machines, contactless bank card acceptance, and even reading the latest generation barcodes. Actually, it's I don't think it's the technical standards of the bus industry that's holding this back now. Actually, it's other modes that are out there too. But we can do it, but we can't do it on our own. You mentioned there some of the payments elements, Martin, uh, which makes me think about one of the biggest buzzwords in the urban mobility and transport industry right now, which is mobility as a service. It's something that's been spoken about for, for many, many years, and it's maybe had a, a bit of a bit of a false start, particularly in the UK. Um, 
wonder what your perspectives are on um, how realistic um, widespread adoption of mobility as a service is uh, here in, in in our towns and cities in, in the UK. And um, what what will be the role of the bus in, in helping to deliver mobility as a service? I mean, you're absolutely right, Neil. It very much is in its infancy. Uh, I think it's right and proper that we try these things. A subscription-based model works for many things in our life, uh, that once we sign up to them, we don't have to worry about them. It's fantastically convenient, and we can just get on with our life and call down these products as we need them in terms of gym membership, car insurance. Um, And actually, to a lesser extent, I mean, things like Apple iTunes, for example, you're not paying a fixed fee, although you are now on their their latest range of, of, of music stuff. But again, you you can just call down what you want. I suppose transport, it's a, it's a little bit more uh, technical. Um, the, the pricing points are a lot higher, and um, we've got to be very, very clear on what it is actually that people want to use because it's not being delivered by one partner. So that brings in a huge degree of commercial complexity. Um, Mass, I, I think the jury's still out, uh, but uh, uh, you know, keeping an open mind to it, my understanding is is that even in Helsinki, which is seen as the sort of European home of Mass, actually the take-up is, is not that great yet. I mean, I was in Helsinki just last year, and, and every poster on every bus and every train and metro is talking about it, but it doesn't seem to be getting the traction yet. I mean, Alex has a, can tap into a wealth of experience of a global transport provider and may, has, may have a different perspective to me on this, but uh, at the moment I'm still watching with a lot of interest. But other than to say, you know, if somebody's going to come and talk to us in, in our bus operation and say, hey, would you like to be a part of this? Absolutely, of course we would. We just need to make sure it's affordable uh, and easy to use. So, so Transdev invested in in in, in the, the same mass provider that, that that Martin's referring to in Helsinki. So, you know, it's something that we're we're very much watching with interest. And I think, you know, back to what I was saying earlier, if the bus really truly wants to be part of this mobility mix and and this idea of life without a car, which is exactly how, um, you know, it's positioned in Helsinki, that you know that that's you know mass surely must be part of that solution, um, particularly as then. It is um, it is presented to the customer in the same way we present Netflix to the customer. You know, of you 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 know this subscription type service that, as Martin says, is something that we're all very used to now. So it sort of ticks the all the ideological boxes, I suppose. Um, but I guess we it probably you know in the UK we probably haven't sort of quite got the deal right or the offer right or the funding mechanism right. That's something that isn't still quite right. That I still think we need to work out. And I think the thing that's uh, ironic as well is that is that probably um if you look at the different components of, of mass um you know rail taxi car hire all those things they will be wanting much more money out of it than the bus will want you know actually we're probably the, the easiest one to solve even though um i'm sure in some cases we'll be accused because of our regulation that we're the most difficult bit to solve but i think you'll probably find that we're probably you know probably could be the easiest bit to solve certainly in terms of the cost and that that surely will be the bit that will complicate things for the user about how expensive this will be compared to fueling my car up or or buying a bus ticket or sharing a car with a friend or whatever they they, they do that they they perceive as expensive so yes it's got to be part of the solution because the offer should be right because again that how we pay for it is how we pay for many things and if the bus the bus needs to be part of this multimodal solution which um which is uh, and the whole thing is part of a part of a provision that, that that doesn't involve a car which means less congestion better air quality and all the things that we want to do to get our cities and towns uh, functioning correctly i mean just to add I- 
I suppose one of the complexities, just reflecting what Alex is saying there, is is, is the diversity of the products that are being offered. Um, the subscription services that we talk about at the moment are, are generally offering the same sort of thing. Is it films? Is it music? Yeah, there, there, there's some commonality there. And, and, and in its simplistic terms, we are talking about transport, we are talking about mobility, but the mechanics and the economics of a car hire scheme versus a bike hire scheme versus using a bus versus using a, a train are wildly different, wildly different. And, and, and I suppose the, the closest analogy I could, I could probably think of is, is, is are we going to have shopping as a service? You know, you're on a fixed price with your supermarket for everything from your washing powder to your breakfast cereal um, through to your toilet roll. No, you're not, because those things are wildly different and, and, and the propensity of people's consumption at different rates and different volumes of different price products is is hugely complex and is going to be very difficult to pitch and fix at one fixed monthly fee in a way that's going to work for everybody so uh but i'm not being defeatist there must be something we can do to make it work better it's a great analogy you could just imagine the the outcry if we all agreed we were going to pay 100 pounds a month for all our tesco shopping i mean it'd be mad in there wouldn't it i want to talk a little bit about um fuel and sustainability and uh electric um, autonomous vehicles. Um, we mentioned already some of the elements of increasing cost pressures for, for bus companies. Um, but it, but if, if two of the major cost elements for most bus companies are staff costs and fuel, then theoretically um, electric autonomous um, fleets solve these problems um, for all bus companies, um, meaning cost savings could theoretically be passed on to customers and cheaper fares, etc. Is that a realistic objective for bus companies to have or is that a bit of a bit of a pipe dream okay well well first of all the the i'd like to say the electric bit is a bit of an easier answer because you know we're doing it now it's happening now in in, in harrogate and, and a number of other operations across the uk now so so electric is here it's not yet commercial but it's here it's practical it's possible indeed you know the electric buses we run in harrogate are actually some of the most reliable buses we have in the fleet that have been really consistently and well delivered now so we're very happy with that as a solution we we needed funding to make that happen. It wasn't something we could have afforded ourselves. So that's that's the next bit we need to solve. Um, and I'm confident the other bits about you know battery life and um, and um, uh, and the ability of buses to, to stay out there all day, all those kind of things. I've no no doubt at all that that will be that will be solved. So the practical the practical bits of electric, um, I think. Yeah, we need the price to come down. We need it to start being a more commercial option. That you know, we we you know we don't we don't want to rely on funding. We want to go and buy these buses ourselves. We don't want to go cap in hand to government for stuff. So so you know, don't get me wrong. That that's the position we we genuinely really want to be in. We want to be self self sufficient. So that's that's that bit. Um, and I do believe of all the low emission solutions that are out there now, electric works for us very very well. And we're, we're pleased with it. Autonomous vehicles, um, a little bit different, fascinating. Um, you know, again, you know, sh- should be should be the right kind of thing we're going to, I guess, at the moment. And maybe I'm getting a bit old sometimes, but the the traditionalist in me and the person, the consumer in me, the person that uses buses, the person that values um, his colleagues genuinely, um, you know, worries about this idea of of the role of of the driver on the bus because we position the driver on the bus as part of the experience that you know he or she is the person that welcomes you on board that looks after you that 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 should be a positive element to to, to how you use our service and and a part of the reason why you like using our services. So I guess 
I would still, if 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 autonomous vehicles um, were coming, and they are coming, you know, let's let's not let's not pretend they're not. But I still think there's a role for the human being to be that person that looks after customers and adds to the experience. Um, they may be doing different things, um, um, and 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 behind the scenes, um, yet there is a role for autonomous in terms of how buses are parked in depots and to avoid accidents and to line up at bus stops and all those kind of things as as aids. So that there's all that there in the mix too. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's something that's coming. And I think we need to make it work for us rather than allow it to take us over. And from my perspective, back to the the first point uh, about fuel, some listeners will be aware that that I ran uh, at the time was one of the largest biogas bus fleets in in the UK, and and, and was was very um, you know proud of that and something that we spoke very positively about. The current air quality agenda is being very much driven by tailpipe emissions. It's at the point of use, and and, and one of the things that we need to balance there is the whole will to will debate. Um, but in terms of tailpipe emissions at the point of use, yes, electric absolutely is the future. Uh, I'm sure that things like hydrogen fuel cell are, are going to be coming more and more uh, increasingly popular and will also deliver similar benefits. But as Alex has said, the, the, the challenges are around the, the, the capital cost of, of this at the moment. An electric bus is, is more than double the cost of a diesel bus. And then you've then got even greater ongoing costs um, in comparison to a, to a diesel in terms of the battery uh, and some of the charging systems uh, and, and all of the systems connected to them. So, um, And, of course, there's different languages within that. We are still very much at a sort of VHS, Betamax and others type uh, stage, stage at the moment. But we have to try these things, and it's great that the government is helping support operators and the manufacturers with producing and trying these things. The costs are coming down, the, the technology is getting better, uh, greater range that we can do to cover our routes, and I'm absolutely convinced that we will reach a point that these things are affordable commercially. And, and, and um, you know, I don't want the funding point to be taken out of context. There's still a sizable additional contribution being made by the bus industry in bringing these vehicles on the street, be it gas, electric, or hydrogen fuel. So, um, and then in terms of the autonomous piece, I mean, I couldn't agree more with what Alex is saying there. The Docklands Light Railway has been autonomous for over 30 years. 1987, it was launched. I was a small boy who used to love sitting in the front of those trains. But they have, they had then, and they still have to date a train captain on board. And that person is there to support the customer experience, uh, the onboard security of, of the customers, and take over when there are issues. And I'm absolutely certain that autonomous vehicles are going to come uh, and in a big way for us, they're probably going to begin with helping us improve the customer experience of things like consistently getting the bus close to the curb without scrubbing the tyres or the panels on the side, improving the parking at depots in terms of the health and safety of things and the most efficient use of space. And I'm sure we will move to a full autonomous world, but actually that world's not going to be a 100% predictable and secure until everything else around it is autonomous as well and it's all talking the same language and I think we're very many years away from that so having a technically competent but most importantly as well customer focused person on board our vehicles I think is something we're going to see for many years to come. And just to finish then with one a one sentence answer can you give us your view on what the bus industry will look like in 25 years? Um, I, th- I, I think actually the bus industry may be slightly smaller, but I think we'll actually be more perfectly formed. I think we ought to be the mass transit solution. Hopefully by that point it will be accepted that we are the solution to congestion in towns and cities. We will be the environmentally friendly solution. We were the solution of air quality. So I think what you'll see are the networks being very, very frequent in urban areas 
I think you'll see the continued rise and growth of interurban services where we are providing a choice or alternative to the train, where the train actually can't do the things that the buses can do because we can get deeper into the into these towns. So I think that's what it'll look like, a network and all the other stuff we mentioned, you know, the ticketing will be smoother, you know, there will be virtual everything. You'll be able to walk on and off buses. People will know where you are, give you your times of where you are. We'll be able to charge where you are. We'll be able to understand where you got off. All that type of thing will be done for you without you realising. But but as an industry, I think it was inevitable that that we will we will only be good at, at those things where we are the mass transit solution, and we can't be all these things to all men. We can't be running hourly services in rural areas around villages. There will be a better solution for that. Yeah, I mean, building upon everything Alex has just said there, we're going to be an integrated uh, part of the transport mix that's focusing on mass mass movement of people. It's going to be dynamic in its deployment. It's going to be autonomous. It's going to be zero emission. And it's going to be a productive mode of travel. It's going to be a place that people actually uh, enjoy being and can do other things whilst they're on board and will add value to uh, their jobs, their lives, and, and about them going about their purpose. So uh, I think a very important part in society. Uh, we can't do it on our own. Well, that's been a fascinating podcast episode, another one. Um, thank you to you both for coming along this afternoon for this recording. Thank you for your, your very open and candid answers and, and views on the industry. Um, and enjoy your bus journey home. Thank you. We both well. All Aboard is an ODI Leeds production, hosted by Neil McClure, edited by Stuart Lowe. Music credit to Lata. If you want to continue the conversation... Or if you have suggestions for future topics, you can get in touch with us on Twitter using at ODI Leads and the hashtag All Aboard.